Hi guys, and welcome back at the macro trading floor. Each and every week, we aim at providing you with the best actionable macro content out there. My name is Andrea Stino. This is Alfonso Peccatillo, back from holidays in Italy, a bit more tanned, but still bold. <laughs> um, this is the, what is it, 7th of July, 2022. And I've been off for like 10 days and mayhem has gone on. I mean, what the heck is that, Andreas? Help me out. What's happening? <laughs> well, um, I basically think the market is uh, full on in recession pricing mode right now. Uh, we've seen a landslide in the oil price. We've seen a landslide in the copper price, for example. Two important gauges, I'd say, of, uh, of global demand. Uh, so this is a massive change of scenery compared to the inflationary autumn that we've, uh, sorry, spring that we've had. Um, and to me, this is the overwhelming story right now. When will the recession arrive or has it already arrived? What's your take on that? Well, I'm basically already released an article on the Macro Compass that is named, So Recession? It's the question. The answer in the article on, on the newsletter is, Yes, pretty much it is the answer. I think people are also underestimating the extent of the slowdown we're going to be having and how imminent it is. There are a couple of things that are suggesting that, Andreas, in my opinion. So first of all, you got, we discussed that plenty of times. So you got the unprinting of money. So mm. the rrr, bruh, instead of brr, now going on for a while, accelerating in pace because we are not printing any credit. Credit conditions for corporates, households out there are as tight as they can be. And on a credit impulse basis, you're looking worse than 2008. Great. Well done. So then you have on top of it, the labor market, which so far has held up pretty tight. But if I look at stuff like initial jobless claims, I do a moving average. So I look at, let's say, the changes uh, and the direction in that. We have basically bottomed and initial jobless claims are moving up. Mm -hmm. And if they keep on moving up, generally by 7 to 10%, three, four consecutive prints, on a month-on-month -month change basis, then you also have more signs that the labor market is also slowing down. And then, as you just said, you've got cyclical commodities getting completely hammered. The moving copper we have seen, for example, 25% drawdown in a month. I took the piece of going and check the rolling monthly returns over the last 30 years. That's 7,500 observations. Do you know how many times copper dropped by more than 25% on a basically rolling monthly time horizon, it happened 0.45% of the times on seven and a half thousand observations, basically never. And do you know when that happened? 2008, a bunch of times, and 1996 when the guy in Japan was basically trying to corner the copper market. So let's call it an idiosyncratic event, but in heading into 2008, copper and other industrial metals had these kind of severe drawdowns we are seeing right now. Yeah. And the bond market is talking as well. So. Yeah, I mean, what are we, 60, 70 basis points off the peak in 10-year bond yields now? That's quite a lot. Uh, and if we look at the commodity space, what I find the most interesting is that stuff as, as uh, wheat, for example, uh, is, is back at pre-invasion levels. And we've been told over and over that Ukraine was the most important part of the supply chain for that. Um, we, we see um, oil back at levels uh, roughly um, close to those levels we saw pre the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, even natural gas in the US is um, in a clear bear market now. Uh, it's a bit of a different story if, if you look at the nat gas traded in Holland. But um, I think it's quite interesting to see that move in commodity space. Uh, and I mean, let's park the debate on a global famine. 
<laughs> Shouldn't we? I, I mean, I, I don't know whether you've seen it as well on Twitter, but a lot of people have been talking about food prices leading to a global famine. I don't buy it. I can tell you that in the south of Italy, there was plenty of good food. There was no famine over there. Uh, there was a lot of sun, a lot of good fish. But um, talking about this move in commodities, what has happened as well, obviously, Andreas, is that if commodities roll over so quick, inflation expectation roll over quick as well. And there has been quite an interesting move in, infl in the inflation swap curve. Mm. Well, the front end has repriced very aggressively. As a result of this commodity prices repricing, the back end, though, has shown you know, more signs of, of holding up mm. relatively well. So you've got now inflation expectation down at the front end very aggressively, which is also reflected in nominal yields. They have dropped pretty aggressively. We've got now Fed funds rate by the end of 2024, 2023, sorry, pricing a hundred basis point less than what the dot plot issued by the own itself Federal Reserve is telling everybody. So the Federal Reserve is 3.75 by the end of 2023. The, the December 2023 Fed funds contract is at 2.75%. So the bond market is like, sorry, guys, I don't believe you anymore. So if you indirectly ask me whether I trust the bond market or the Federal Reserve dot plot the most, uh, then I think the answer is pretty straightforward. I trust the bond market the most. Uh, we've seen how the bond market has guided the Fed uh, oftentimes, basically in both directions, right? Uh, it doesn't uh, only hold for one direction, it holds in both directions. Uh, and to me, the bond market is almost shouting now that this will be a relatively rapid but also um, kind of extensive in volume, um, this hiking cycle, but it will also conclude within say six, nine months from now. And I think that's a feasible scenario. I think uh, I have to concur Andreas and uh, I am a fixed income geek, unfortunately, really, I'm sorry for that, but I had a look at the instances, historical instances where we had a hiking cycle, a relatively fast one, And then the bond market tried to price the Federal Reserve to sort of slow down or cut after the peak in the hiking cycle was reached, like today, right? We got terminal rates all the way up to three and a half percent, and then we're pricing some cuts. We basically have a hundred basis point cumulative cuts priced from the moment the terminal rate is hit and two years after, soon immediately after hiking cycle. And that instance has about never being priced by the bond market, not even in 2007, where we were clearly hiking as the economy was lowering, not even then the bond market was pricing such a, a hard pivot from the Federal Reserve. Yeah. Um, but I mean, one thing that I would like to discuss with you today is um, whether the Fed can pivot ahead of an actual peak in inflation. Uh, I've had a look at historical hiking regimes um, within the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. And you can actually find quite a few instances where the Fed pivoted ahead of uh, inflation peaking. Um, latest example being 2008-2009. Uh, uh, we actually had a, a, a continued rise in, in prices after the pivot from the Federal Reserve, simply due to the fact that some prices they tend to lack um, a lot of other economic indicators. One clear example being um, the rent of shelter in the CPI index, so the housing cost component. Uh, it lacks the economic development by almost one and a half years. So obviously that component will keep increasing while the actual economy is slowing. Um, so I think that there is a clear possibility of them doing it again this time because it has happened before. Um, what they need to pivot 
uh, is probably an excuse by the labor market, I think. I agree 100%, Andres. This sounds like when they were saying that they would uh, let the economy run hot and inflation run hot until actually inflation run hot. And then they're like, no, 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 no. We don't like that anymore. It's a bit the same with the labor market. If you look at their uh, summary of economic projections, the Federal Reserve themselves are projecting unemployment rate to move up Mm. by 0.4% over the next few years. And um, Claudia Sam, I think, the the former Fed economist, she basically modeled that an increase of 0.5% in unemployment rate always leads to recessions in the US. Conveniently, the Federal Reserve is projecting an increase of 0.4%, not 0.5% in their models, but but it's telling you where the, the rate of direction is. And I really do not think that they can keep their hawkish stance if the labor market seriously starts to show some sign of distress. They will probably start talking uh, a bit more than once. And that's enough, I think, for bond markets to uh, listen to that and perhaps even front load that and stage a rally, maybe what we are seeing already. Yeah. Uh, being born and raised in FX space, I also want to talk about what we see in, um, in the euro versus the dollar. Because um, to me, it seems as if we are heading towards parity. Um, at least that's what price action is telling me right now. And uh, it's quite interesting to see that even with uh, expectations of the ECB hiking all the way into late 2023 and early 2024, um, while at the same time the Fed being priced to cut interest rates during that same period in time, the euro is not able to gain versus the dollar. That's interesting because you would usually expect the euro to gain when when there's such a divergence in pricing between the two central banks. Uh, First of all, I consider that discrepancy between the ECB pricing and the Federal Reserve pricing absolute bollocks and nonsense. Uh, Of course, the ECB will not hike two years in a row with the Fed cutting. I mean, come on, they're, they're not suicidal. Uh, they may be stupid, but not suicidal. Um, so that that's not going to happen. I simply cannot imagine that. Um, but secondly, um, I think this is driven to a large extent by the energy issue in Europe. Uh, I noted the spread between net gas prices in Europe, traded in Europe and traded in the US. Um, that spread is widening as we speak. Um, and I think that's one key reason why the euro is so weak. Um, you look, if you look at electricity prices in Germany, they're still going bananas. Uh, if you look at uh, net gas prices traded in, in, uh, in the Netherlands, they're going bananas again. Uh, so to me, this is a signal that the European energy issue or the European energy crisis is so severe that no matter what the ECB will decide to do, they will not be able to change the short-term trend for euro dollar. And I again agree with you. We should find something we disagree on. For instance, that monkey picture on the back of you. What's that? <laughs> we disagree. We disagree on that. No, just kidding. But um, so the problem is, as a as a commodity importer like Europe is a net commodity importer, you would expect, Andreas, that if commodities actually take a hit, the euro would take a respite. That's normally how it mm. works, or it should work. Because terms of trade improve, and so your domestic currency should actually appreciate. The opposite is happening because. Europe is basically net importing energy from one source. And that source is not 
easing the conditions at all and probably won't be easing the conditions at all over the next few months. So it's a sort of idiosyncratic, horrible situations where I don't think the European Central Bank has any power. I mean, you said it very right, mate, that the forward curve in Euribor is much steeper than it is in, in dollars, in Libors right now. So that delta should help the euro. The drop in commodities broadly should help the euro. But the, the problem is that there are some idiosyncrasies here that can't be easily solved. Yeah. Now, I think we've been way too serious for our standards for too long. So uh, before introducing our new guest, I think I want to uh, do something very important here on the macro trading floor. <laughs> Last week, I wasn't here. I still listen to the show. My friend Jack Farley has set some horrible rules that I would like to scrap away immediately. So let's reset the rules of the macro trading floor. A, here you can read the shirt, central banks do not print money. They print bank reserves. That's an inert financial form of money that we cannot use. B, if you put pineapple on pizza, I'm going to come and try to kill you straight away. <laughs> and C, I don't even remember what the third rule was, but the rules are Southern Italian rules at the macro trading floor. And central banks don't print money, by the he, way. They print bank reserves. He, he wanted to be able to drink cappuccinos during the evening. Ouch. No way. That's not allowed. <laughs> not allowed as well. My, my fun take of the week, Alfonso, and, and now I'm reading out aloud because um, I have to put some praise on myself for once. Uh, I've been so wrong all year, so I have to put some praise on myself today. Um, I um, tweeted this earlier um, in the week. Trump wanted Angela Merkel to stop using Russian gas, increase military spending and decrease the trade surplus. Lo and behold, here we are. I, I mean, can you imagine? Uh, I mean, by coincidence, he basically got everything he wanted. It's huge, Andreas. It's huge. <laughs> yeah, it is. Now, time to introduce our guest of the week. And uh, we're very happy to have um, a guy who has a, a vast experience, I think, in calling macro trends. A very fun guy as well. So looking forward to introduce him. So guys, it's time to introduce our guests. You can already see him. I guess he needs almost no introduction. I'll still do one. Is Julian Brickden is the co-founder of MI2 Partners. And uh, we're very happy to have you here, Julian. How are you doing? Cheers, gents. Um, great. Yeah. Fun. You know, we, Macro is back with a vengeance. <laughs> with a vengeance. <laughs> So, I, I mean, um, hot on the heels of that comment, um, we are basically standing at crossroads macro-wise, mm -hmm. if you ask me. Um, let's have a look at your top-down macro thesis, Julian. Where do you want to start? So, look, I, I concur, Andreas, right? I mean, I've held off up until the very end of, uh, you know, third week of last a month in touching fixed income for a while because I've been really, really aggressively playing this inflation game, right? I think our big, in, we wrote, the first piece we wrote in 2021 was uh, inflation, the key variable in 2021. Um, and then um, we played it very, very aggressively uh, right across the board. We sold euro dollars, short sterling, Euribor, the whole damn lot. And so this is the first time I've actually dipped my toe back into those trades cautiously, but nonetheless back into those trades. Um, and it's just because I think, to your point, we are at this kind of 
pivotal point now where I'm still wary of the long end of the bond markets for various reasons. I think we've got some huge structural headwinds for lower yields at the long ends, right? Huge structural, and we can talk about that in a second. But you're at that point in the cycle where typically the bond curve, and this is where, look, you both guys are fixed income guys. So I'm not going to insult anyone when I say, you know, I'm an old git, right? I'm allowed to scream at the TV now. And um, it's, it's, it's acceptable. And one of the things that makes me do that more than anything is when I hear equity guys talk about the yield curve and they talk about, you know, how the yield curve is inverting. And that's a sign of basically a uh, the bond market pricing in a recession. And that is total and utter bollocks because in actual fact, the sign that the bond market starts to price in a recession is the bull steepener. Because what we do is we start to say, oh, I know what you think you're going to do, central bank, right? You've priced in seven hikes into this curve. You're not going to get to seven. You're going to get to five before the shit's going to hit the fan and you're going to back off. And I think that's that phase we're in because I do see signs of things slowing down. Uh, I do not believe we're in a recession yet, but I think those signs of slowing down, even in a sticky inflation environment, which I think we still are in, I don't think this thing is going to evaporate overnight. I still think in a sticky environment, that front end play is is where the focus of the bond market really should be, right? You know, how many, where's that terminal rate? How many rate hikes are those central banks going to be able to get in? So Julian, you are talking to a fixed income geek. Here I am not coming from the equity space. So I've not been steamrolled by your comments so far. Um, let's talk about that for a second, because I think it's part of an important part of your macro thesis. And you basically have told us that you're trying to dip your toes again into the front end of the bond market, euro dollars, especially let's say 2023 maturities. Yep. Do you agree or disagree with the bond market pricing of terminal rate, which nowadays stands at about three and a half fish percent, a bit less after the rally we've had last week? I, I think it, I think so, Alf, and I'll tell you why. I think, Firstly, I think that if you look at what happened in uh, these bond markets, um, we really almost assumed that the only tool that the Fed had to slow this economy down was the bond market itself, right? We forget that there is this, what is it, 7 trillion? I've lost count, right? I mean, it's, you know, Austin Powers, right? Balance sheet that stands behind this thing. And that is about to kick in with a vengeance. And to my mind, when it comes to asset prices, that is almost, well, it is more important in determining certainly equity and housing than um, fixed income. The rate of, you know, fixed income seems to be very sensitive to the, particularly the curve, to the rate of change in the balance sheet. But equities and, and tend to be very sensitive to the amount of liquidity in the system. And so I think we priced in a hell of a lot into fixed income. Like I said, like it was the only tool that could do any of the heavy lifting. And given that we live in such a hyper financialized economy, in other words, the feedback loop between equity markets and um, the real economy should be, and we wrote this piece the other week called the chicken and the egg, right? So the if you think about this logically, it should be the real economy. That should be the chicken, right? It should lay the egg. It should set, you know, where inflation is, where profit margins are, where employment is. No, it's the equity market that leads the real economy because we don't pay CEOs to produce anything. 
They are sh- literally shepherds of an equity price, right? The minute that equity price starts to fall, they run off to the cupboard, they grab their axe and they start cutting costs, right? So we can already see it. We're seeing some layoffs, certainly hiring freezes come into place. You're starting to see it in this continued claims numbers already starting to show signs of picking up. Some of my indicators on unemployment suggest quite a material uptick in unemployment by September, October. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's when we probably slip into recession. Um, but the point is, is it's really the equity market that's going to get us there. Now, right here, right now, are, we, are the equity boys going, oh, bond yields are down. That's all great. Right? And they forget <laughs> that the reason that bond yields are down and commodity prices are down is because we're price, beginning to price a recession. And they haven't even thought what that means for earnings. Right. All we've had so far is a reduction in equities because of PE reductions. One of the things that I've been watching very closely this week, Julian, is the development in uh, in euro dollar in FX space. Uh, we are slowly but surely heading towards parity, uh, mm-hmm. likely mostly driven by the ongoing soap opera in Berlin. Uh, but I mean, what do you make of the role of the dollar in the uh, macro environment? So that I, you think, just I think so. Structurally, the dollar is actually extraordinarily vulnerable. Um, and I tell you why. I think in the same way that was the case going into the dot-com bubble, we funded a US current account deficit with equity inflows, not with treasury inflows, with pure equity inflows. Now, that can continue obviously for a while on a relative basis, Andreas, right? Hmm. And, you know, certainly if I look technically at the euro, um, It doesn't look good, mate, right? I mean, it really, really doesn't look good. It looks to me like, if anything, this thing is going to... I mean, if you look, you could argue it's head and shoulders top. We've taken out the neckline. Maybe we get a little bit of a bounce. But you could argue, on a technical basis, we're going back to the 2000, 2001 lows. It's like 85, okay? Mm. Um, we will see but we've done a hell of a lot of damage and I wouldn't even think about buying the damn thing until you got back above 103 and a half. Okay. But, um, and if anything, I'd be a seller right here, right now. But um, structurally, I think the dollar is uh, potentially right vulnerable because of that, how we funded this US current account deficit. And if anything happens, it's a very unstable, stable equilibrium, right? Because if the current account itself shrinks, because the US goes into recession, then the US doesn't need the funding. Okay, so, you know, maybe maybe it goes into the treasury market. In that case, the dollar doesn't move, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe it goes home, right? Mrs. Schmidt sits there and goes, oh God, in Euro terms, how much have I lost in my NASDAQ trade, right? Maybe she never does that, right? Because maybe just the Euro falls so much, she's actually, she's unhedged. She has to be to fund that current account deficit. Maybe that's okay. Um, Maybe we just have a bubble in the US equity market, which I still think we do. And I think this correction is about halfway through. Um, so, you know, but the point is, at some point, I fear this is going to come home to roost. And at some point, I think if the pain gets acute enough, right, and I think it's going to take a lot of pain, don't get me wrong, because I, I think people are way too sanguine on when they think the Fed will capitulate. I mean, I think Sintra should have just told you that these guys, there were very, you know, lots of other warnings before that, but Sintra should have told you, the ECB meeting, that these guys are dead serious about slowing this inflation. 
Now, there's Dead Serious and there's Paul Volcker. I don't think any of them are Paul Volcker. So there's Dead Serious up until the point that the equity market's down 40% and unemployment at uh, six. And then they go, uh, right? Um, and that's kind of my, that's where I think we are. You know, and, and Congress comes out again and spends even more free money because they're already trying to talk about Build Back Better 2.0 as we speak. So, Julian, the labor market, I think, here holds a lot of the keys because if you're going to wait for inflation to fall down, it is basically the most lagging indicator in any Correct, cycle. mate. You know, especially now, Andreas has pointed out a couple of times the switch between goods and services and services inflation is the stickiest part, the late Correct. cycle part. So for, to wait for that to come down on a month on month basis, uh, on, you know, to, to basically compound the goods deflationary, disinflationary story we're going to be seeing, it generally takes a while, right? So, but maybe if the labor market cracks earlier than that, that sort of gives the Federal Reserve I'd like it. I would agree, but I don't think it will. And I tell you why. I've listened to a couple of the conference calls from the ISM uh, guys. So Tim Fiore on the manufacturing side and Antony Nieves on the mm. on the services side, and both of them poured cold water on the idea that the weakness in those indicators was weakening demand for labour. Both of them were very clear that the problem was unavailability of workers and the price of those workers. And as a result, firms were starting to back off. I mean, Nieves said there were some signs of in certain sectors, some layoff, but he said, broadly speaking, what caused that number to drop was the lack of workers. Not So I think, I think we could be in one of those situations, guys, where people, and this will be problematic because to your point, Alf, it'll mean the Fed will keep going for longer. Um, I think that you will, firms could cling on to people longer than they should do. So it's kind of like an inventory overhang, right? You can swing, right? You, you build up all this inventory, which they've definitely done, right? I sent you a piece beforehand where I said, this is, this inventory situation could go from famine to feast to hangover in a nanosecond. And I think we're going back to the boom bust economies of the late 1960s into 1970s, where this thing can stop literally on a dime. Um, but the same thing could happen in the labor market. If we labor hoard, right, to use the economic term, and then all of a sudden demand dissipates, you could find that we've held on for, to people for too long and profitability starts to suffer. Um, you know, so, so let, that's why I think when the, when the downturn really comes, I think it's going to be really quick. I just don't think we're there right now. I mean, ISMs, both of them were commensurate with really 2% GDP growth, not recessionary GDP. I think we just forget, right? You know, oh my God, ISM's 53. That was pretty damn good prior to the point that we started printing 60s and assumed that it was frigging Buzz Lightyear, infinity and beyond, right? Well, it, it you know, that, that clock, that amp does not go to 11, Right. It really, it really doesn't. Right. Let, let me float an idea uh, with you, Julian, uh, in regards to the labor force um, and the lack of supply of workers. Um, if I were a member of the uh, Federal Open Market Committee, I would basically almost salute wealth destruction by now because that will tempt 
tempt the boomers back into the labor force. Yeah, so, I totally agree, may, mate. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I mean, maybe it is even a good idea for the Federal Reserve to bring equities even lower than what we've already seen. Would you concur with yeah, that? Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. I do. Mm. We have written about this long COVID issue. Uh, and mm. I think it is not something to be sniffed at. I mean, there's some NHS data from the UK, which is more granular than you can get here in the US, but I would kind of compare, think the US and the UK populations, you know, are somewhat similar uh, in terms of vulnerability and, and the, the approach to the uh, pandemic. Um, and they suggest that up to 1% of the workforce could have just permanently disappeared now because of either they're incredibly vulnerable on an ongoing basis, so they're reticent to go back into the labor force, Andreas, or mm. they were older, they've decided, screw it, I'm not taking the risk, right? Or they, are, they do have some form of long COVID. I mean, I have two friends who've got long COVID, and this is two market friends who in some way, shape or form. And if they were not lucky enough to have a just job where they can work for an hour, nap for an hour, you know, if they had to have, hold down a proper job, because um, we clearly don't have a proper job, we just bugger around and pretend we do. But, um, you know, if they had a proper job, they would be unemployable. Hmm. But I do, I do concur. I think you, well, I mean, look, you know, a few of those lunar billionaires may be coming back onto the labor force <laughs> now, right? So, Julian. Let's say that the labor market is going to perhaps weaken a little bit. You told us before that your September, October uh, early indicators. That's still quite a long way out, mate, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Right. Let's say it's three months ahead, right? So yeah. let's say it keeps somehow a little bit of a feeling it's weakening. Would you then expect, uh, if the Federal Reserve actually turns dovish, would you then expect that to have what impact on the dollar? Oh, if they, if they turn dovish, and I think the dollar starts to weaken a little bit. That would be my first sign. I'd want to see the price action in that kind of scenario. Um, could be offset if the equity market takes as an excuse to rally. But I do think at that point we're, you know, this is what the equity market forgets. Once you start that ball rolling, right? Unemployment doesn't do this, right? It does this and this and this and this. It, you, you know, unless the Fed truly backs off and then punts the cycle. So eases immediately, mm. right? And re-QEs, right? I think the odds are this thing will just, will, will go. And particularly if you run into then that sort of um, aggressive inventory cycle mm. overhang, I think that's when things become kind of problematic. So I can, I do think the recession risks are rising. I just don't think we're there yet. Um, but I do think for the front end, it's pivotal, but the long end, I, I you know, I, I look at these charts and I think Bunds treasuries have broken 30, 40 year, multi-year trend lines. I think the demographics are appalling for fixed income going forward. I do not, I, I think you, people look at it incorrectly. They look at how much we consume. Right? They say, oh, when we all retire, we don't consume as much. But asset prices aren't determined by how much we consume. They're determined by how much we save. Mm. Right? And so even as we shift to the retirement phase, we dis-save. Right? All those assets that we spent, as the boomers have spent decades building, they start to disgorge them as they 
spend, right? They don't spend as much and they spend on different things. You know, adult depends and, and cruises are not nearly as exciting as, you know, some of the other things that we used to spend, you know, in our twenties, right. You know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll and fast cars. Right. But <laughs> now we buy comfy shoes. Right. I mean, it's not, but the point is, is we're not saving guys. And when you model that out, the trend for the next 30 years is, is treasury yields higher on balance. We also, there's a great couple of papers that the bank of England did uh, where they looked at 800 years of bond bear markets, basically. And, uh, they were all ended by the same things, pretty much war and a pandemic and or a pandemic. We've got both. Mm. Yeah, we've got both. Mm. So I, I think the odds that this long end, I mean, look, don't get me wrong, you know, rallies 30 basis points, 50 basis points, sells off. But I'm not a big structural buyer of bonds now. I think you sell any rally in fixed income from here on out. So Julian, I have to back up for a second. I see Andreas wants to ask a question, but um, I think we touched upon a bunch of stuff from the labor market to the dollar to bull steepening in bonds. Um, I want you to, for a second, shed the light on the fact that if the front end of the bond market rallies, then equity markets won't rally, in your opinion. Can you please explain to people how does that work? Correct. Because I hear a lot of, you know, bond yields down, I need to buy equities, ARK, QQQ, anything I can get my hands on. Can you please explain why that is not the case, in your opinion? Right. So that, as I said earlier, the curve inversion is typically the bond end market. At this point in the cycle, was the bond market pricing in an aggressive central bank hiking cycle, right? So two-year yields rise relative to the long end, okay? Mm -hmm. And you're safe holding that long end because the central bank is being tough and protecting you from an inflation perspective. This point, the, the recessionary move is where the bond market, as I said, starts to quite question how much can the central banks tighten? And a lot of that has to do with equity weakness, right? So this trade won't work, Alf, if suddenly the equity market goes, oh, they're not, they're only going to hike six times, right? And then runs up to the highs again, but they're forgetting why. And this is another old man moment. And I have done this shouted at the screen, you fucking idiot, right? To some equity guy on the, on the TV who said, oh, well, yields are down. And they're forgetting why yields are down. Oh, commodities are down. Well, they're forgetting why commodities are down. They're down because the market outside the equity market, which is full of, a bunch of, you know, the half, the glass is always half full, right? Are seeing this as, oh, this is pressure relief, but it's down these markets because they're beginning to price in recession. And the recession is not bullish for stocks, right? And there's been zero capitulation. I saw Andreas's interview on Real Vision with the guy from Cantor. And I thought that chart where he showed, Andreas, that you highlighted positioning versus sentiment, right? We're yes. all, everyone's bearish, but they haven't sold, mm. right? And I think that has to happen before you see a low. There's no signs, whether it's in vol, cross-correlations, positioning that tells you capitulation. If anything, retail keeps buying the fucking dip. Yeah. <laughs> Julian, let's assume for a second that the dollar will weaken around the corner. Uh, and in a structural way. Um, I know you've done a, um, a historic study on what happens in equity space. Should we get this turnaround of the dollar trend? Please take us through that. So, uh, as I said, I think there's been, 
there's a period, there's thing, something we called exceptionalism. And I think people, this is somewhat counterintuitive, but it, it really goes to do with the, the, the strength of the currency and actually the outperformance of an equity market go hand in hand. And it's counterintuitive because you would assume that typically as your currency rises, it hurts your exporters and right, you make, they make less money. It's actually not really the way it works. A classic example being Japan into the 80s. Mm-hmm. So in the highs in the 80s. So the Plaza Accord comes along, central banks come in and they, every single day they're selling dollars and buying yen and Deutschmarks. And all that money goes pouring into Japan. There's a great tech story at the time. These amazing companies like Sony who are building this cutting edge technology. We're all being told at business school, at least when I was at business school, not when you guys were at business school, but when I was at business school, that Japanese are going to take the world over, right? And they're, you know, just in time thing is going to just revolutionize the world. So we pile into Japanese stocks. So in a rising yen environment, the Nikkei in dollar terms outperforms 300%, right? And you create this reflexive kind of cycle. Okay, and that's where the stupid thing was that the Empress Palace, the land on the Empress Palace is worth more than California. Okay, we did the same into the dot com bubble in the US. So from 95 onwards, the dollar started to strengthen. Okay, and the money sucked in. We get this great narrative around US tech and, and, you know, all these fantastic companies, the dot-com bubble, right? And then when the dot-com bubble truly bursts and the US goes into recession, it takes some time, right? The bubble itself goes in like 2000, March of 2000. It's not until the end of 2001 that the dollar really starts to go as the Fed goes, oh shit, we've got, we're in a recession. Then this starts to go down, okay? I think we've been the same sort of thing. The only problem is I think this is actually run even longer, I think this has actually run over a decade now where we've had this truly reflexive cycle, Andreas, of money coming into US equities on a rising dollar where foreigners can get, and there's an American expression, two for one, right? Twofers, right? You get a rising dollar and a outperformance in the equity market to the point that in dollar terms, the only things that have been worth buying from 2011 onwards when the dollar based has been US tech and US stocks. Everything else has done diddly squat, right? Nothing, made no money basically in dollar terms, in anything else. But then you go and look at what happened from 2002 to 2008, okay, when the dollar fell. And I'm not talking the end of the dollar as a reserve for currency. What Muppet in their right mind would truly want to stick their money in the renminbi? Right. Or the euro in terms of massive, you know, as a Westerner. Right. Okay, But um, I do think if you look at that period, 2001 and beginning of 2001 to 2008, where you had a 30 percent decline in the dollar, which is standard kind of decline that we typically get. The literally everything that you owned going into that period was the wrong thing to own. So U.S. tech massively outperformed, underperformed. The U.S. massively underperformed. Energy massively outperformed. Minings and metals massively outperformed. EM massively outperformed. And so I've called this, and as I said, we're not there yet, right? Because if this euro just keeps going because they, you know, all the Germans freeze over the winter, right? And they're popsicles, right? Um then, you know, the ECB will never tighten and this thing, they'll have to keep doing QE or God knows what else that they have to do. Um, But 
if it does happen, and it could be still some time, I think you literally get a rotation, I've written this, of biblical proportions in the sense that the last become first and the first last. So everything that we own is the wrong thing that we to own. And I mean, we in aggregate uh-huh. and everything that people do not own is the right thing to own. So Julian, let's marry your medium-term macro-narrative of a slowdown, also potential slowdown in the labor market that might make the Fed somehow turned dovish, reflect in your bull steepening trade as well in, in bonds with your medium-term, medium to long-term dollar weakening narrative. What is the macro trade? I think the macro trade, and I'll, I'll send you this chart so you can stick it in. I think the macro trade is long XME versus the S&P. So, and you could do triple Qs if you got bigger balls, but uh, the, you know, I think it is long mining and metals, which is still negative in absolute terms since the dollar based in 2000, negative versus an S&P. And there's a great trend line that uh, basically acted as support from 2014, which is when the dollar really took off and then Mm. it broke and it stayed below that line right up until February of this year. It's broken above it. It's come back down. It's retesting right here, right now. And I think you put that on and I think you, it's the ratios around, oh geez, moved up this morning, 11. Okay. I would set the stop at eight and a half. Okay. And I think the initial target is 24.25. I think the one after that, I think, is 32. And ultimately, I think we're going to 56. So this is, this is a and, – and you can run them. I like ratio trades because you, when the market's weak, you sell a little more S&P. When it's strong, you lift some of the hedge, right? And you trade around it like, like that. So long metals and uh, mining versus yeah. the overall S&P 500 index in a ratio yeah. spread trade. Uh, we always allow our guests an early exit option um, like Putin should have. Uh, so um, in, in this case, uh, you are allowed to already explain now what could go wrong with this trade, Julian. So what could go wrong with this trade? I mean, look, if we end up in a... Let's say Ukraine opens up, right? Mm. And, you know, there, there is peace, peace in our time. Um, then I think it's possible that minings and metals could take a, a lurch lower. Um, and then I think you'd have to manage that um, accordingly. I think that would be the biggest immediate risk that I see. Because on the S&P, I kind of struggle. I mean, I think these guys think they're being held up by you know, these big mega tech names, which everyone is flowing into yet again, assuming that, oh, haven't we heard that one that in recessions, advertising goes down? And isn't that what Google is these days? Right? If you look at WPP, the big advertising agency, it suggests it's got absolutely hammered, right? And it suggests that Google should be 30% lower, right? And, oh, you know, everyone's going to buy another $1,200 Apple phone, in an environment where they're struggling to feed their kids and fill their car up and oh, in Europe and heat their house. Right. But we're going to buy a new 14 Apple, you know, iPhone 14. No, we're not. 
These numbers are all going to get revised out. Maybe they can beat this quarter, but the guidance, I think, is huge. And if it isn't this quarter, it's next, where the shoe drops. Maybe we will buy Huawei's instead. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we won't, mate. No, that boat has sailed. And I, I thought, <clears throat> actually, this has been a big theme, you know, this deglobalization that we talked about and this moving back to blocks. I mean, you're not, I don't know how old you are, but I do remember if you'd have said to Ford in 1987, we think you should. So before the Berlin Wall fell, we think you should go and open a factory in the USSR, right? They would have said, you're out of your mind. <laughs> That's where we're going back to. Yeah. Right. Tesla's going to have to make a choice which bloody passport, Elon, which passport he owns. Because he ain't going to be able to flit as he is. And I think that was a big deal from Sintra again, that ECB conference is acknowledgement of deglobalization. So, Julian, the fact that you ask me how old I am means that you believe that I'm by far older than Mr. Steno Larson over there. Oh, I, I apologize. Maybe it's just a hair <laughs> thing, mate. <laughs> I, will, I, will, I, will not, I will not take that as a compliment. I mean, he has this blonde hair he can pull through. I have no hair, but that doesn't justify you asking that question. Just kidding, Julian. This, this has been a great interview. Your long XME, Minings and Metals, short S&P 500. I want people to be able to find more about you. So if people want to find you, where can they? do that so look if there's any institutional guys and they're interested uh ping us at uh, support at mi2partners.com um and uh if you otherwise you know if you're interested in the real vision product which we do with raul which is you know a uh, very different price point uh you can ping us there too um and otherwise if you just want to follow me on twitter and my rants and do take it that i know it's like you guys occasionally you do just like to go <laughs> and you needle people because you like to see the oh, Twitter sphere go nuts. Um, that's at uh, Julian MI2. And by the end of the day, I need to admit that I'm actually older than Alfonso. Oh, okay. That is, that is the honest answer. <laughs> okay. Well, you're both babies in comparison to me, mate. So there you go. True. There you go. Julian, you, haven't even got any dark, you haven't even got any blonde or white hair, I should say, on your beard. So you're maybe it's, you do. It's not a very good picture with you. It's, Andrea, uh, it's, it's not it's like coming, me. It's coming for both of us, Julian. Don't worry. Yeah, uh, so, is, so is the end. Thanks for the interview. It's been a pleasure to have you here. And uh, we hope we we'll can host you back soon on the macro trading floor, maybe in a couple of months. Thanks, guys. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. All right, guys, we are back July 7th, 2022. Our guest, Julian Brigden from MI2 Partners, came up with this trade idea. He is long XME, metals and mining ETF, against short the S&P 500. So it's a relative value trade where he wants to buy aluminum, steel, gold miners, and whatever other metals and, and, and miners in general, and short the S&P 500. So... Andreas, what do you make of the macro story behind and the trade idea? Uh, I think he's onto something when it comes to the structural story. Uh, I tend to agree that we've seen a shift in the geopolitical landscape that will um, 
play a role in financial markets for the next 10, 20 years. We can get back to that. Uh, and therefore, on a very structural basis, I think a lot of th- a lot of stuff will happen over the next couple of decades. That didn't happen over the past couple of decades. Uh, but when it comes to the trade in itself, um, this is a, a typical example of a trade looking extremely cheap on long-term charts. Uh, and I mean, I've been a sell-side strategist for more than 10 years. I basically toured every single client with trades like this all the time because um, it makes for a compelling story to find the cheapest point uh, in in equity space and buy that point versus the most expensive point in in equity space. And that is essentially what this trade is. It is, by the end of the day, being long the cheapest segment at all versus being short tech stocks or very expensive stocks seen from a price earnings multiple perspective, right? Um, the reason why I'm not particularly fond of uh, of the trade from a timing perspective is that you need a turnaround in the dollar for this trade to work. Uh, and we debated it in, in the intro um, that uh, given the amount of turbulence, turmoil, um, you name it, in China, in Japan, in Germany, uh, in the UK just today with Boris Johnson resigning and a complete soap opera uh, politically. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of easy right now to just point at the US and conclude that it's the cleanest uh, shirt among the dirty laundry, right? Um, simply due to the mess ongoing elsewhere. Uh, so that is basically my main objection against the trade right now that I don't buy into the story of the dollar reversing. What do you make of it? So first of all, a comment. My mentor always said, Alf, if something is cheap, because it's gone down 50%, never forget, it can always go down another 50% from there. <laughs> That's the mathematics of investing. And he's actually very right. So what happened before, actually, unless it's a clear mean reverting strategy that you're pursuing, what happened before doesn't inform what can happen after, can also drop another 50% after that. Although it makes for a great sell side story. I was on the receiving end, Andreas, of these stories, right? I was buy side for what, seven, eight years. And, uh, you know, I I had a lot of guys like you coming in my office. I literally had also you coming there Mm. and discussing stuff, right? And always, there there was always somebody picking up the cheapest thing and the most expensive thing and saying, yeah, you know, long the cheapest, short the most expensive. It's time for reversal. Now, obviously, it can be time for reversal and you're right on the dollar. The dollar is the main driver behind this trade at the end of the day, right? So if you get a situation where the US economy is rolling over faster than expected and the Federal Reserve, for instance, because the, the labor market is showing more signs of weaknesses, then the Federal Reserve maybe blinks towards pivoting as well. Then what you're going to have is still an earnings recession because, you know, as Julian pointed out correctly, recessions are not bullish for stocks, generally speaking until you're late in the cycle in the earnings recession and the central bank has turned very accommodative. At that point, you might want to try to buy certain stocks. And actually, at that point, miners, gold, precious metals, everything actually gets a bit because the dollar is weakening as a result of a weaker economy and an accommodative monetary policy against expectations. Will we see that over the next six months? Um, Actually, there is a chance that we might want to see that, as in, I think the labor market is already weakening. Will it weaken to a point to convince the Federal Reserve to be honest, I don't have a crystal ball uh, to, to, to think about that already. 
but we are seeing some signs of weaknesses. And if that leads the Federal Reserve to turn, that might be one point where it's better to be, let's say, short companies that are relying on earnings and relying on cyclical economic activity that won't pick up yet and long stuff that is relying on accommodation from the Federal Reserve. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that, but I, I would still not consider that my base case for the, at least not the upcoming three, four months. Um, the visibility is pretty low when we get six, nine months out right now. I, I have to admit that the visibility is probably lower than ever um, when it comes to uh, to this discussion. I also wanted to touch upon his structural outlook because mm -hmm. one of the things that he very clearly and explicitly mentioned a couple of times is that um, China is f for now the enemy number one for the West. Um, and whether that could hold repercussions for the US dollar in a broader setting is an interesting topic, I think. Because if we uh, roll back time just a couple of months, um, the entire Western world basically uh, sanctioned the national bank, the central bank in Russia, from its international FX reserves. So the dollars, the euros, etc. Um, and I basically think that Julian is onto something uh, when he hints that other big central banks, such as the People's Bank of China, probably freaked out at that point. Because if the West is able to sanction the Russian central bank, well, then potentially they could also be able to sanction People's Bank of China and uh, limit their ability to, to use the international FX reserves that they hold. Uh, so that's, that is an interesting geopolitical angle to the whole debate on, around the dollar, because I think that this will lead to at least a decline in the use of the dollar in international FX reserves over time in Asia, in Eastern Europe, uh, to, to a certain extent in Latin America, uh, in Africa, etc., simply due to the risk that the U.S. will sanction you. What do you make of this debate? Very fair point, Andreas. Yeah. And we are indeed seeing a lower share allocation of FX reserves into dollar over the last, I think, five to six years. There has been a slow decline. The pushback argument here is, what are you going to do with your FX reserves? <laughs> I mean, a lot of people like to make theories about a basket of commodities. Do you, do you remember Zoltan Posar? He came out with an article basically backing the basket of commodities being the next reserve currency. Mm. Since this article was out, commodities are down 30%. So I'm going to ask somebody, how would you feel about parking the excess basically coming from trade surpluses or whatever else it is into a basket of commodities that loses 30%? By the way, how are you going to transfer and trade this basket of commodities when you need to prop up your domestic economy? You need a liquid, transactable, repoable instrument. And like it or not, I think treasuries represent still the instrument of choice for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> I was about to say B-O-N-D-S, bonds, right? Um, oh, so, bonds. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I used to travel um, around the world to meet central banks and FX reserve managers uh, when I was a sell-side analyst. Uh, and I remember one of the discussions I had with them uh, surrounding FX reserves uh, was the issue of uh, supply scarcity in, 
in government bond space in certain areas. Uh, that's never an issue in the U.S. Treasury market, uh, but it was an issue. Uh, for example, for some of the Scandinavian currencies, um, yeah. uh, the, the, the Swedish central bank bought uh, at some point around two thirds of the entire government bond market. Um, and that basically led um, central banks around the globe to leave Sweden in the International FX Reserve because they need an underlying decently liquid bond market to be there. Uh, and they didn't uh, want to dip their toes into uh, sort of more risky assets, uh, even more risky fixed income assets. So I think it's prerequisite number one, if you want to be an international reserve asset, you need a liquid and big bond market underlying your currency. I agree. needs to be repo deep as well. Mm. So in case you don't want to sell your securities, you're able to repo them to somebody else needs to be tradable, liquid, deep, secondary market as well. It needs to be deep, Andreas, at the end of the day, yeah. uh, liquid and trustable and also relatively stable as a market. And I don't see alternatives. Do you want to try Eurobonds? What are Eurobonds, by the way? We don't have them yet. We, no. we, we just started issuing some of those because of, of, a, of a pandemic for the mm. first time ever. European countries could agree in, in just some joint backed issuance because there was a pandemic, great. And now we are already discussing about mm fiscal surpluses, bringing back deficits to zero, which means you're not going to have any supply of liquid AAA assets in size, um, and, and or at least the stance remains very conservative from that perspective. What else do you want to try? China? There is not, bond, there is no, not a bond market no. there. I mean, but I, I mean, by the end of the day, if the European Union actually pursued a path with a big or huge um, common bond program, uh, also transferring some of the risk from, from Southern Europe into this uh, common uh, bond setup, then I would buy the euro with an arm and a leg if I actually received That's that true. signal, uh, because it would make the, make the euro much more compelling as a reserve asset. It will also um, sort of limit the tail risks surrounding the whole setup of the euro, etc. But we're still so far from that scenario, so I stay short, euro versus dollar. I'll, uh, I'm going to go just out and ask my Dutch friends here if they want to pay up for some of the uh, structural unemployment in Greece, Spain, or Italy. Let's see what they say. I don't think they want to do that, Andreas, so, no. uh, on a structural basis. I'm, I'm not sure that's going to happen. Um, when it comes to our trades, just to wrap it up, um, what would you think is the top risk-reward trade going forward over the next two to three months? Um, I, um, I basically think that you need to be short the Russell Index. Um, because it's it's the best way to reflect an earnings recession. Um, it's very earnings vulnerable. Uh, that's one thing. We also debated that a few weeks ago. I still like to belong the DXY um, via uh, various ETF structures. Uh, I'm, I'm long uh, the dollar versus the G10 basket in ETF space still, and I, and I stick to that trade. Um, and then finally, I actually think that Julian is onto something when it comes to the um, bull steepening case for um, for for various yield curves. Um, interestingly, uh, a client of mine asked that question this week: How can Europe be in a recession when we have a bond spread of, say, fifty-five basis points between the ten-year point and the two-year point? Um, because my response was: Because it is not monetary policy that is driving the recession in Europe. It's an energy question. So I actually think that we can get a boost evening and a recession in Europe at the same time, even from these levels. So from my side, mate, um, I posted an article on the Macro Compass last week. So my trades are public, um, short 
two times the Russell and long one time the Nasdaq, which is basically a, not, a net short equity trade right. with the tilt to try and benefit from some early pivot. Nasdaq is actually an index. It's very tricky because there is a bunch of highly, high, high beta overvalued stuff in there. When I say long Nasdaq, I'd rather want to be long Microsoft, long Apple, mm. I don't know, something like that, long quality tech names against short Russell. The idea is to be, you know, to try and capture with that relative value lag some of the early pivot we might see at some point, but in reality, it's short two times Russell. So it's still net short equities. I think credit spreads are so wrong still, Andreas. That's one side that I think has to suffer more going forward. If we get an earnings recession, if we get the amount of reserves being drained from the system, both in Europe and in the US, people are underestimating the fact that in Europe as well, we're going to see reserves dropping at the end of the year due to TLTRO repayments. They might be a bit delayed, but they will come. So the amount of reserves will be drained from the Eurozone as well. I can't see how credit spreads should tighten in this environment. And when it comes to um, to the bond uh, curve, I went long for the first time, 10 year plus bonds, three weeks, 23rd of June. So two weeks ago, uh, 325% in 30 year yields. I think it's a decent level to start adding because Andreas, what, what, what happens there is that time works your way. If you are sleepwalking into a recession, if you're getting closer at some point to that, while the Federal Reserve will be looking at the most lagging indicator they can ever look at, which is month to month inflation to drop, then you, you basically will have a, an additional certainty that forward growth will be slow, which makes you be able to buy 10-year bonds with a certain, um, let's say, uh, with more relax than you could do in the past. And also bonds will serve more and more as a hedge for drawdown in risk assets if we get closer to a pivot in the Federal Reserve stance. Ladies and gentlemen, Alfonso Picacciello just bought bonds. That's worth listening to. <laughs> Um, interesting. I agree with that trade, by the way. Fully agree. Can I get the out of jail card for a second? My preferred expression of trade is actually to do two stands flatteners in the US if you can. If you can't, it's okay to start buying some bonds. You write it publicly. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'm going to stop out as always. I don't have a crystal ball, but yeah, I did buy some bonds. Alfonso's Picatello is long bonds. I think that's the way to conclude the macro trading floor for uh, for this week. Um, it's been a pleasure again this week. Uh, we hope you like the content out there and uh, make sure to review us on your podcast app if you um, would like to continue to receive this free actionable macro content each and uh, every Sunday. Goodbye from me, Andreas Steno. And from Alfonso Picatello. Talk to you next week, guys.